Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and I help CEOs and teams with the people stuff in leadership. Sometimes that's not just about fixing problems. Sometimes it's about being awesome. So if you have an executive team that you want to help become leading lights and be the envy of your competitors, let's chat. Just go to zoerouth.com, click on the contact page, and we can hook up and have a conversation about what you've got and what you can do to make it even better. Love to talk to you. I also love talking to today's guest. Imagine this. You are a young leader. You've been elected to the mayor position as the youngest person ever to be elected as a mayor after being the youngest councillor at the age of 29 in a small local shire, Bigger Valley Shire, and you are hit with a series of crises, three bushfires in a couple of years, followed immediately this year, 2020, by the coronavirus. They say that the test of a leader is in times of trouble. And Christy McBain, who is the current mayor of Bigger Valley Shire, is one of those leaders who has been truly tested and come through shining. So what does it take? She is going to share her story about how she has coped with the, um, what do they call them? The Black Summer bushfires this year that came across Australia and really affected her shire how for over 400 people lost their homes and what they've done to help build the community and help them get through that, even through COVID-19. It's extraordinary. So please welcome Christy McBain, local Vega Valley Shire Council Mayor. Christy, so awesome to have you from your home office all the way from Vega Valley Shire. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> I've been excited about interviewing you for some time, watching how you handled the bushfire crisis earlier this year, and the communication strategies you were relentless with was amazing. So first of all, congratulations on navigating that so well uh, and coming through the other end of that. Thank you. Yeah, it was uh, one of the things that we learned from a previous bushfire experience in 2018, Tarthron District Fire, was that people want to hear from you regardless of um, what you have to say and regardless of how much information you have. They want to hear your voice and they want to know that you're with them, that you're supporting them, that you understand what they're going through. So that was definitely um, the driving factor behind the communication strategy for the, for the last uh, fire, which was the Black Summer Fire. Oh, is that what we're calling it? The Black Summer Fire? Yes, Black Summer Fire. It's been officially dubbed, which will make reference to it much easier for everybody because it obviously wasn't just in one location it was um pretty widespread yeah it was I mean all of Australia was on fire I remember looking at the maps daily going oh it's just swallowing up the entire country and so down in the Bega Valley Shire what who was effective how many people were affected down there um so we're a shire of about six and a half thousand square kilometers in total we have a population of 35,000 over 60% of our shire was impacted by the fires. Um, there were six separate fires burning in our shire, literally to the north, the west and the south. Uh, and the only thing stopping it from the east was obviously the ocean. We had 465 homes destroyed, over 1,000 sheds and outbuildings destroyed and another 130 homes damaged. So fairly widespread impact and the impacts were felt in a lot of different parts of the Shire which makes it very difficult to manage recovery wise because you're not concentrating on one location you're you have to be in several locations and getting information to several different communities. 
And that's been compounded, of course, since the advent of the coronavirus crisis. So we just got through summer, got the fires out, and the communities got to rebuild, and then whammo, we've got hit with COVID-19. What has that meant for the community and the recovery effort down there? Yeah, it's been very difficult for us um, with COVID-19. Obviously, we've had to suspend all um, community outreach sessions. We've had to suspend, we were doing um, twice weekly community meetings in different uh, towns and villages across the Shire. A lot of the uh, outreach recovery has ceased. It's been very difficult because a number of businesses that weren't directly impacted by flames during the fire were impacted by the overall disaster because there was a tourist leave zone put on a large portion of the coast and and many of those business owners were looking forward to, you know, Easter school holidays and obviously with COVID-19, none of that has come to fruition. So bushfire-affected regions have been dealt a a serious... um, secondary disaster with COVID-19 because we haven't had traffic uh, here since uh, January. So our businesses are now going months without uh, people coming in. And it's a big tourist zone. So that's got to have massive uh, repercussions on the on the businesses and livelihoods down there. How are people coping? Yeah, that's right. Um, it's very difficult for us uh, without the tourists coming in, a lot of our businesses directly rely on those tourists and a lot of the business in, indirectly rely on the additional people coming into the Shire. So it's been very difficult for a number of people, um, which has made it very um, hard to get into recovery for bushfire because um, people have had to now stay away and stay home. And a big part of recovery from any disaster is actually coming together. Um, So it's been uh, particularly hard for those that have been directly impacted by bushfire. Have you been able to do anything virtually? Because can't, like the infrastructure, I wonder if the infrastructure is actually working for that. A lot of our communities are still having trouble with uh, telecommunications. Most people now have electricity back on. We have tried virtual community meetings um, and getting people to log into those. They're a bit hit and miss. Some people are uh, well engaged and on board, but a lot of those people that have been directly impacted are also people that want one-on-one contact uh, and sometimes they're not prepared to be part of a, a virtual meeting coming to their local town. Um, where they can go to their local hall and, and see neighbours and, and be surrounded by people they know they're more likely to come in or a neighbour actually drags them along to a, to something that happens in their town. So we're trying a range of different things and, and still trying to um, speak to people one-on-one. But, yeah, the recovery delivery method has changed. Oh, it must be really heartbreaking for so many people. You, as as the mayor and being at the center point of all this, the crisis management, the crisis recovery. That's a lot of stories to hold and it's a lot of hands to metaphorically hold. How are you coping personally? Yeah, look, I um, I have had some experience with the, the Tartharan District Fire in 2018. I um, uh, About a year after that, I, I fell in a bit of a heap in terms of I, I got sick and I couldn't get myself better as as quickly as I thought I should and I hadn't realised how much I was taking on from what it was happening around me. So I think this time I was a lot better at as soon as the um, initial crisis was over, so the, the second week of January, uh, I did a critical incident debrief with a workplace psychologist 
and and I'd worked with her previously and she said to me you're coping much better than I thought you would be and I already had some coping mechanisms put in place for me after the the last disaster so I'm going okay um I guess the the difficulty that I have at the moment is it's hard to be out talking to people in the shire with COVID-19 and social distancing in place and much of my work at the moment is taking place from home and I think as I said earlier that makes it difficult for people on that recovery journey because they want to see you and um, sometimes it's to tell you a story sometimes it's to to tell you their frustration Uh, in many cases it's never about you finding an answer for them it's about people being heard and I think that's the difficulty in this recovery process because people aren't being heard the the way they normally would be heard Mm, that's right which is face to face and listening yeah. So yeah, it it's a it's a it's a different thing to sit on the other end of a Zoom line or a phone line to to listen. Yeah, you can't comfort them in the normal habituated way. You know, arm around the shoulder and compassionate ear. So I want to zoom out and ask a big picture question first. You've been a leader through a couple of different crises now, and you're a young leader. How do you define leadership, and when did you discover you could do it? <laughs> Having taken on this job, I've been to a number of local schools and that question normally comes up from kids at schools and I've had it, you know, at a grade six leadership camp. One of the questions, the initial questions was, how can I be a leader? And my answer is always around leadership doesn't require a title. You don't need a title for somebody to tell you you're a leader. I think leadership in your own life comes first and that's putting in place the the goals or the resolutions to get you to where you want to be it's something that uh, my parents definitely instilled in me was that no one's ever going to hand you anything on a, a silver platter and you're going to have to work hard to get wherever you're going in life but whatever you want to do is definitely achievable if you put in the hard work so I guess leadership to me is definitely around taking control over your own life discovering yourself what it is that you're passionate about and then putting in place the the steps to actually get to that goal Um, and I think if you're successfully leading your own life others sort of look around and you end up with a title most times Um, but leadership definitely doesn't come with a title to begin with. So when did you figure out that you could do that? I don't know I, I mean if I go all the way back to when I was a a kid I remember looking around and thinking back in my school we were burying a time capsule and I was the school captain at the time and we had the then premier of Victoria come as well and he asked me what I wanted to do with my life and I said I don't know maybe I'll have your job and it never occurred to me that I couldn't do that and then I got to high school and you know We were talking about what we wanted to do with our lives and I said I might be the first female Prime Minister of Australia. Never occurred to me that I couldn't or shouldn't aim that high and um, I guess I I realised that there are times in my life where I have been talking publicly and you can see that people are actually listening and taking in what you're saying and that then becomes a, a sense of responsibility that if people are listening to you, you need to make sure that you're careful with what you say because people will take it as gospel but if they're listening then it's uh, the platform you need to actually get some 
things done and things changed. So why politics? You trained as a lawyer. Is it a natural leap or what, what sort of <laughs> nudged you in that area? Um, so I did a, a double degree at university in journalism and law and I'd always been interested in, in politics growing up, which is quite interesting. My brother and sister are not. They do not uh, care about politics whatsoever. My husband isn't very interested in politics. <laughs> uh, my parents aren't really that interested in politics. I sort of got involved in local council. I was uh, on maternity leave at the time. Um, I had a two and a half year old and a three month old and decided, you know, what else can I do with my spare time? I might run for local council. Wait, you think you had spare time with little kids? Yeah, heaps (laughs) of spare time. Of course I did. Um, Yeah, so I think there'd been a, a decision made about a sports ground or a playground and the council at that point had eight men and one woman on it and they were all over the age of 55 and I just thought that's not representative of the community that we have around us and instead of standing on the outside screaming I thought I'd try to get on the inside so I could have my say. Cool and so you got onto council and then eventually became mayor. Yeah, so I was elected in 2012, the youngest person that's been elected to Bega Valley Shire Council, walked in with my pram and said, I can't do council meetings on a Tuesday because I don't have daycare. And so they, um, we changed the council meeting day to a Wednesday. In 2016, I was re-elected and elected as mayor, so the youngest person to be elected mayor in Bega Valley. Was it what you thought it would be or was it, did you discover something new in becoming mayor? Um, there is a a big difference between being a counsellor and being a mayor. Being a counsellor, you you get some information, you go away, you make your decisions. Uh, Being a mayor, you're involved in, you know, every aspect of the council. So much lobbying advocacy work, you're, you know, you're really looked upon for everything. You're really the spokesperson for the entire area and I guess trying to make sure that you're doing the best you can by the most amount of people you can in in an area is a big challenge. And it's a big, it's a different leadership shift too. So being a councillor, you're an elected representative and you're representing your constituents and your neighbours and so on. Then you become mayor and all of a sudden you have a team. You have a team of councillors and you have a team of staff. What did you learn about leadership in that context of dealing and coordinating others? Yeah, I think the the uh, big change for me is that I for so long worked by myself, for myself. So I didn't never had to run decisions past anybody. My thoughts were my thoughts. You know, there are times where I may not have been in the uh, majority resolution of a council, but I am then the spokesperson charged with going out talking about the resolution that councils just made. So there's no room for my own personal opinion to come through them because I am the spokesperson and I have to to um, do what the council has resolved to do. So it's a big lesson in compromise and I would spend a, a great majority of my time negotiating and compromising between councillors and staff about outcomes that we want and also making sure that whatever we decide is adequately communicated to the community And what we see, I guess, between levels of government and community is that often community are saying, we didn't know about that, we didn't hear about that, nobody asked us about that. So there's always a a gap in trying to get people 
interested in the process of government and then the decisions of government. So that's always going to be a challenge, I think, and social media, which I thought may have tried to bridge that gap a little bit, isn't quite there yet. Really? So what are you finding? What are the, like, are are people just not watching stuff on Facebook and the other media channels? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the demographics of society, there are obviously people that still aren't on social media or aren't interested in it at all. There are, there are people that still heavily rely on, um, you know, newspapers, for example, or radio. Um, so trying to come up with communication strategies that engage people across a range of different media and also get them engaged enough to actually respond to some of the questions that we're asking. You know, a lot of the time we implement a, a new strategy and people say, but I didn't know about that but we'd been out on, you know, public exhibition and we'd tried a range of different media. So it's that trying to get people interested enough to to actually be involved in the process rather than just be involved uh, after a decision's been made. I love it. It's it's so true, right? People are complacent until something bugs them. <laughs> yeah, and, and we, we see it at all levels of government, really. And I guess that's another reason that I considered running for council back in 2012 is because I wanted to know how that process worked and I wanted to know how other people could be involved in it. But it's not a a simple or a quick fix for people. So that's still an evolving challenge. So going from somebody just made their own decisions and ran their own show to being at sort of being pulled from pillar to post and having many constituents and many stakeholders... What has been your biggest failure and how did you get through it? Um, I think probably early on one of my biggest failures was not communicating enough with other councillors. I found it difficult to sometimes balance the things that I wanted to say with the things that I could say. So that lesson in making sure that people have enough information and they've heard from you enough um, as opposed to being too independent and too on your own in a leadership um, sense. Um, So that was definitely a failure early on was uh, not communicating enough. And did you get feedback about that or what was the repercussions? Yeah, look, I I had feedback from councillors saying that they wanted to hear more from me. I had feedback from others that said, you're the mayor, I don't care what you do, it's your job. Um, So it's that balancing act, I guess, uh, in that situation. But, yeah, it's definitely something that I um, have taken away and I've made sure that I try to communicate with people a lot more than I when I did uh, when I was uh, originally elected in 2016. Cool. So at the moment, you're in post-disaster recovery process, which has been interfered with with COVID-19, which has layered disaster recovery with massive uncertainty. Disaster. Yeah. Yeah. So with all that uncertainty and all that stress, how are you thinking about the future? Um, Before we got into this next uh, disaster, which is COVID-19, our council had decided already the path it would take for recovery. So we have created a new directorate for recovery. So recovery, rebuild and resilience. So we've got a dedicated team to the recovery process. And we had to change the way we think and talk about disaster. So we shouldn't just be talking about 
what's happened and what the impact is going to be, but also the opportunity that that then brings. And I think COVID-19 on top of that only furthers that narrative is that there is a lot of opportunity um, and the opportunity for us to attract new business or new investment into an area that you know, has a big dip in the working age of our population, you know, that 18 to 45 year gap. So what we're saying to people is, you know, we haven't been as impacted as metropolitan centres. It is much cheaper to run a business from a regional area. You know, we have an airport that takes you to and from Sydney three times a day in the usual cases when we're not in COVID-19, an airport that flies to Melbourne twice daily, you know, we're two and a half, three hours from Canberra. We're on the coast. We've got a beautiful lifestyle. So I guess for us, yes, there are some things that we need to work on. Yes, there are some industries that need to be consolidated and try to, to help those people as much as possible. But yes, there are also opportunities for us to actually market ourselves now and show what can be done from a location like the Bega Valley. So I just want to x-ray a little bit about your approach to the future that I heard and what you just said and just want to road test something. So in thinking about the future as an opportunity, you started by unpacking what the region's assets are. And that's what I heard you say. You know, we've got an airport, we've got flights in normal circumstances here, here and here. We've got a beautiful location. So is, is that where you started in order to discover what the opportunities are? Is like, what have we got going for us? Yeah, look, we've um, for a long time worked on the basis that we have a number of economic assets that could be beneficial to to multiple people. For example, the Port of Eden is the third deepest harbour in the Southern Hemisphere. And when I say that in Sydney, some of our um, state agencies say, oh, really? Are you sure? And I say, oh, I'm positive. And then they have a look at it and they say, okay, yes, you've got um, some amazing attributes that have never been expanded on before. So talking about the opportunities that are available in a regional setting rather than trying to pack everything into what traditionally people see as economic activity centres being metropolitan areas. So just on that one, why is a deep port an asset? It's a huge asset trying to get things in and out of a country. So a country like Australia, you obviously have container ships that come in frequently, uh, cruise ships that come in frequently, and the uh, depth that you need or the, the draft that you need to get those ships in um, becomes the reason why they stop in some ports and not others. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, so we, look, we've got a number of those natural economic assets available to us. And we want to be able to build on those uh, economic drivers in the Shire and not only just for us, but for the wider region around us. And I guess now is the time for us to actually start to say to people uh, and to businesses, have a think about where you live and why you live there. And if you think you could do that from somewhere else, then uh, we would love to have that conversation. Yeah, I mean, I've long wanted to live by the coast. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that it's cheaper to run a business from the coast and it's got beautiful um, locations is is certainly attractive. So from your point of view, the future looks good, rocky, challenging? Look, the future's obviously challenging from here, going on the back of, um, you know, three bushfires in, in two years. And that recovery process is going to be difficult. It's difficult this time more so than the other two because of that uh, economic impact of the closure of whole towns um, when we had that tourist leave zone in place. 
and then having the compounding um, effect of COVID-19 so quickly after uh, the Black Summer fires has obviously made it very difficult for a number of our CBD businesses. It's also seen a number of those CBD businesses innovate and pivot their business model and, and become, you know, I guess still required and still needed for the community. But, you know, I guess the long term for us, yeah, there's going to be a bit of a rocky road ahead, um, but I think the future looks very bright. It's interesting, like all these disasters are change that's imposed upon a region or a business or an organization. And when we talk about leadership, one of the challenges in leadership is leading change and leading imposed change is the hardest one because people often resist it, feel helpless and struggle with it. On the other side of that, though, because you'll be creating new things as you move forward, what's your strategy and approach to leading change, leading positive new things that people can opt into? I think the, the most important thing when there's any change taking place is to make sure that change is being communicated. Not everybody is going to agree with you about the change that is taking place, but if you can communicate the reasons that these things are happening, uh, and sometimes it's being open enough with people so that they understand, for example, with the bushfires or with COVID-19, you didn't know why they were happening and you had no answer for a lot of the questions that were coming, but you're still there. I think showing people that you're showing up, that you can hear them, that you're compassionate, that you're empathetic to the situation they're going through and that you're working towards a solution and you're working towards a, a change that you think is going to benefit the majority of people in an area, people uh, will get on board. So I think it's about making sure that you're listening but that you're also leading the charge in terms of why the change is happening and why it needs to be done. One of the things that leaders complain a lot about is people stuff, the little things as well as the big things. What is the toughest people stuff challenge that you've dealt with? Um, look, it's it's very hard, uh, especially with local government, because, you know, we are all things to all people at times. And uh, at times you're the literally the only government in an area, uh, the only government authority that they, they see. Sometimes it's knowing that what they're asking you or, or the issue that they're having actually has nothing to do with local government and you can't do a thing about it, but you're there listening. There's a lot of times where the problem that's being brought to me doesn't have anything to do with me, but because I'm the, the person that's the head of the organisation, they are adamant that I'm the one that needs to be spoken to and I've just taken the approach the whole time that I will listen to anybody. That's a good approach. <laughs> Rather, no, I don't want to talk to you. You don't. You don't fit my criteria for listening. <laughs> yeah, and look, there are there are people that I've seen where that is their approach. It's like, well, there's nothing I can do about that. Bad luck, and then you know, on to the next thing. And I just think to myself, you know, even going back to my career as a lawyer, there are so many times where I've sat in an office with, you know, a client, and we've talked through their problem and I've said to them, well, there's nothing I can do for you. Or, yeah, look, here's an approach we can take, but it's going to cost you a hell of a lot of money and you're not going to get the result you want at the end of the day. The only person that's going to come out successful after this is me because I'm the one that's been able to charge a whole lot of money. So you're speaking the truth. That's a hidden secret for the lawyers. <laughs> 
so you know I think a lot of the times it's about hearing people out and where you can help them you can where you can't you've got to be honest about that and just say look there's nothing I can do about that and I always find that you'll never lose points from just talking to somebody and even when you say I can't there's nothing I can do about that you won't lose points for it yeah that's good you can never lose points for for listening that's a that's a good one what's the best piece of advice you've been given on leadership I don't know that that one's really difficult for me I mean I don't know that I've ever sought out advice on leadership per se a couple of good ones that I've received which I think you can just put into practice whenever is making sure that you you write down what you want to achieve and I did that you know as a long-term goals but what I found is that if I write a list of the things I want to get done the next day they're more likely to get done so um, I've definitely taken to to making lists of the things that I need to get done for people or for myself yeah and I think reading a lot I was a really avid reader in high school and at university anything I'd read anything and it became less and less so because I did so much of that reading for my for my work so I stopped reading for enjoyment and I've started that up again in the last 12 months and I think that's um, always great to actually take your mind off other things and 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 do something for yourself yeah I, I agree with that I studied honors English literature at university and I could not read any fiction for five years after that. I was just like, got too much. Now I read all the time, fiction and nonfiction. Do you have a favorite book that you turn to again and again? Um, Not really. Once I read something, that's it. I've done it. I've read that and I move on. I have a lot of biographies and autobiographies that I've read through, a lot of fiction books, but I'm definitely one of those people, once I've read it, that's it for me and I move on. Same with movies. As a kid, I watched Annie and Mary Poppins over and over and over again. But as an adult, I think once I see a movie, that's that's pretty much it now. Seen it, done, next thing. So out of all those books uh, that you've read, is there one that sort of stays with you in terms of you come back to thinking about or that was a favourite? I am a big Elvis Presley fan, actually, which is a bit awkward because I was born after he died. But I've read numerous biographies on Elvis Presley, numerous things about Elvis Presley. And on my honeymoon, we actually went to Memphis. um, Wow, you're a serious fan. Serious fan, (laughs) did did Graceland's, did all Sun Studios, did all of that. I love reading about Elvis Presley. Presley and trying to figure out in my own mind how he ended up the way he did but yeah there's some really interesting things about Elvis he was a a huge reader himself and he used to highlight things in in books um, and go back to them and write his own notes Um, he read uh, a lot of different religious material and would decipher what it actually meant yeah, so I, I like reading things about Elvis because I still think that's probably one of the, the great things we'll never know is how his mind worked and why he ended up the way he did from the most popular and recognisable person in history and then, you know, to, to someone that was unrecognisable as the person that he was when he started and then obviously had to cease at such a young age. It is a tragic story, that's for sure. Yeah, and his really? list of his list of accomplishments 
is so long uh, for someone it is. so young. It is, and it's quite interesting. My my husband's not an Elvis Presley fan at all. <laughs> doesn't like politics, doesn't like Elvis. Presley's not a polit- <laughs> political fan. But as we went through Graceland's, it shows all of um, his, you know, gold and platinum records, and he walks through and he's like, wow, I did not realise that he was um, this amazing. So, yeah. Fantastic. Oh, well, there you go, the king. <laughs> That's exactly right, the king. So when your high school students or your grade school students ask, you know, how can I be a leader, and your leadership advice to them is around, have a crack, don't, you don't need a title, and communicate a lot, what's your last piece of advice you'd give to people considering leadership roles? Look, I, I definitely think you need to have a plan. And whether that plan is where you want to be, you know, in 5, 10 or 20 years' time, what is your end goal and how are you going to get there? And there will be numerous times where you have to reassess that goal or change your plan or, you know, you get to the end of five years and you've got another five-year plan to make. So it's constantly about reassessing where you want to be in life and it's not something that I thought that I did but when I look back at all of the things that I've done so far, there's always been a um, I'm going to do this in this time frame. So for me, even though I thought that I never did it, I clearly did. Um, and it's something that I, that I do now is um, think to myself, where am I going to be in five years or what do you, what's the end goal for me and, and how am I going to get there? So what is your next end goal? Um, I'd, I'd really like to um, continue in politics uh, and whether that for me is, you know, taking a, a step to state or federal politics make that decision and then uh, work really hard on it because I think that as much as we like to denigrate the um, democratic institutions that we have, they are the places where decisions are made, where the direction of um, the state or the country is decided and I still think it's much easier instead of shouting from the outside to be in the inside actually making those decisions. So hopefully in my future I'll be able to represent people on a larger scale because I think there's a a great vision for Australia still to come. That's beautiful. I love it. It's a great last piece of advice. Great to hear some insight into your future. You've obviously had a brilliant career so far and doing wonderful things for your community, being such a great model for leadership more broadly. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation and really enjoyed your stories. Thanks very much, Zoe. That was a really fun interview. And some of the reflections I'm taking away from this are how to spot opportunities in travesty. And I love what Christy did with her team in terms of listing the assets of her community. And I think we can do that in businesses and organizations too, is that in any crisis is like, what have we got going on that's working for us? And then we can list what are the needs out there and see if we can match the two. And that's how you come up with different opportunities. And probably the other key takeaway was her quotable quote, you can never lose points for listening. Thanks very much. Live well, lead well.